Hey, hi. Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner. I'm a programmer at TIFF now, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Karen Knox, a Toronto writer, director, and actor you might know from her work on the series Slow Pitch, Barbell, or Homeschooled, among others. She's just directed her first feature, Adult Adoption, which stars Ellie Moon as a young woman whose determination to find a surrogate parent winds up making her life even messier than it already was. It opens in Toronto at the Review Cinema this Saturday, July 14th, and in London and Vancouver next week, and you should check it out. Karen picked The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover, Peter Greenaway's 1989 stunner about four people, a perfectionist chef, a monstrous gangster, his unhappy spouse, and a reserved bookseller, played respectively by Richard Boranger, Michael Gambon, Helen Mirren, and Alan Howard, whose lives intersect at a very fancy London restaurant with spectacularly tragic results. If you know, you know. And if you don't, welcome to the world of Peter Greenaway. This is someone else's movie. I love Peter Greenaway pretty unequivocally. And I think like when I, I didn't go to film school. So my sort of like introduction into cinema was like via other people who were cinephiles. And I was living in London when I was 21. And um, this older person who I was like briefly romantically involved with was like, you have to watch all of Peter Greenaway's oeuvre. Otherwise, like you will never understand cinema. You will never be, uh, you know, like a true auteur. So I was like, well, I guess I better start my education. Where should I start? Um, and they told me, okay, yeah, you got to start with the cook, the thief his wife and her lover. It's actually really hard to just like rail off the title of that film. You're like, okay, wait, yes, it's the cook, the thief, his wife and her lover, not just cook, thief, wife, lover. Um, so I started with that movie and it was like, I remember watching it for the first time on my laptop in my like disgusting flat in London and hearing Michael Nyman's score for the first time and being like, oh, this is art. This is this, like, this is the thing that I want to make. This is true cinema at its, like, most gazomped Kunstwerkian kind of quality. It's Wagnerian. It's theatrical. It's, like, irony-laden. But it's also so, um, kind of embraces melodrama in a way that was, like, very appealing to me as, like, a 21-year-old. And, of course, a huge part of Peter Greenaway's uh, entire collection of films for me is his costumes. I'm obsessed with clothes. I always have been. I'm like a real sartorial, uh, I'm a clothes hound. <laughs> and so, I mean, you know, as soon as I was like, I was like Googling, I was like, wow, my God, the costume design is so amazing on this. And I was like, okay, well, of course, Jean-Paul Gaultier designed all the costumes for, for this film. And I just thought they were like, it was amazing. And I think, I think too, like prior to seeing Peter Greenaway's sort of collection of work, I was really into like Before Sunset, like Linklater stuff, like very improvisational mumblecore kind of like gritty indie stuff. And I was like, this is like, this is really cool. But then um, seeing like how uh, sort of surrealism can be like worked into cinema in a way like, you know, in the, in, 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 in this film, you know, my favorite sort of like one of the things that struck me right away is like when we change rooms, the entire lighting palette changes, the like the entire color palette changes yeah. and the wardrobe is just like instantly different. And like, if there's no commentary made on it, it just exists in the world. And I was like, 
well, you couldn't really do that in like a mumblecore flick, could you? It just wouldn't quite work. So I think like for me, it was sort of like, oh, wow, like movies can be theatrical because um, I come from a theater background. So like I love theater um, and I unfortunately, like if left to my own devices, have like a bit of a penchant for um, melodrama. Uh, so I found, I, I think when I watched Green, I was like, yes, this is the kind of movie that I want to make. This is what I aspire to. Uh, and then I just like went down such a rabbit hole, watched like his entire collection of films, most of which I really liked, some of which I thought were absolute dog shit. Um, <laughs> but most of them I really, really enjoyed. I, I don't think I've met anyone who's loved everything Greenaway's done. They either like the turn towards the, the midsection of his career, like in the mid-90s mm -hmm. after Prospero's books when he embraced video and just got seriously weird yeah. and and decided to do whatever he wanted but then you have things like the baby of of i always want to Mackle. call it yeah i always want to call it the baby of macon because someone referred to it once <laughs> as the maybe of bacon and it never left my head <laughs> uh derisively but yeah the people he got to work with him in those films or those movies and those projects still makes them interesting yeah. um so i i always go back and i almost always regret it yeah. but the earlier formal stuff the the, the film's yeah, right up to Cook the Thief. I think that was sort of his turning point, really, because it gave him mm -hmm. the mainstream success or the reasonable art house success and the breakout that he'd never had before. Yeah. Uh, but things like Drowning by Numbers and The uh, Draftsman's Contract. So, Drowning by Numbers is actually my favorite Greenaway film. And I was going to pick it, but I oh, was yeah. like, I was like, it wasn't like it's it's definitely my favorite Greenaway, but it wasn't the one that like got me into Greenaway. Right. And like if I like and I actually remember more about Cook Thief Wife Lover because it hit me so hard. But if I was like, if I was being like a, a an astute Greenaway academic, I'd be like, Drowning My Numbers is his best film. What what is your favorite film by him? I think I'm gonna go with Cook the Thief. Yeah. Uh, cool. because it plays with it plays with my uh, my own sensibility in a way that, mm. yeah, it scratches me like an ASMR video. It's just, it's so, yes. it's so pleasing to watch. Oh my God. All that perversity and all that beauty and yeah. the, the way that he constantly, I mean, right from the start, it's all about the intrusion of the vulgar into art, right? Like mm -hmm. into the spaces that we consider elevated. And mm -hmm. he's never on the side of the thief, like Gambon's no. character, Albert Spicka is a monster. Yeah. But he is such a fun monster that we enjoy. Oh I mean, it's God. almost like a template for The Sopranos 10 years later. You know, enjoy watching this awful person mm. just destroy everything around him and and condescend to the man who is, to, to Boringer, to the, to the chef yeah. who is bringing him this magnificent food day after day, night after night, mm -hmm. and, and just, and not value anything. It's only about what things cost. And then have mm -hmm. a different kind of vulgarity, which is on-screen sex, Yes. portrayed as so sensitive and loving and kind and then yeah. you know as i got older i realized all of these characters are over 40 like most of them are in their are approaching 50 yeah and you have yeah. the story of a genuine love affair between mm -hmm. two people who ordinarily wouldn't be sexualized by cinema and mm -hmm. the, that's not interesting to greenaway like that's just he's he clearly doesn't care about no. their age but no. if they, and you've got the younger people who don't appreciate it right there in the movie you've got tim roth's yeah. character as this naive um 
like this sort of nascent Vulgarian, like he's going to be just mm-hmm. as bad as Albert if he doesn't see something better to distract him. And, yeah. and Kieran Hines as someone who knows yeah. better and finally speaks up and is destroyed for it. And mm-hmm. all of these things which we would recognize as kind of, and I, I keep trying to place it in time because this would have been 89. So this is three years after Neil Jordan's Mona Lisa, or maybe only two years. But okay. it feels like Greenaway's answer to that. Like, if that's what's mm. selling right now, I'm going to make that kind of movie in my way. Interesting. And throw Interesting. up the, you know, flip the Vs to this idea of what proper British art cinema is. Because this is yeah. right, like, Prick Up Your Ears is happening. And yeah. Mike Lee and Ken Loach haven't had their breakthroughs yet, but they're already mm-hmm. revered. Mm-hmm. And he just whops this thing right into the middle of all of it and gets yeah. England to pay for it, right? Because it yeah. wasn't it was financed publicly, or at least partially. Yeah. Yeah. And delivers this thing. I mean, I remember seeing the press screening at the Canada Square with a nice. hundred people tops. Oh wow. Um, because I can't remember if it played Tiff or no. Oh, it did play Tiff on September eleventh, oh, cool. nineteen eighty nine, oh. as it turns out. Whoa. Uh, but I didn't see it there. I saw it after the fact because when I was yeah. that was my first or second year covering the TIFF for the Stars mm-hmm. video magazine. I didn't have access to the press screenings yet. Mm-hmm. And I saw it with radio contest winners, right? Who had so what no was the re- idea. Yeah, what was the audience response to that? Uh silence, walkouts, <laughs> anger. It was great. Yeah, that's amazing. It's not like it's not an easy film to watch. Like you have to like it's and it's so like that is the other thing that I love about the film that is like it's so it's so beautiful, but it's also like completely disgusting. And it's like the mix of those two things is like I don't know how Greenaway quite pulls it off because everything is so elegant and like the food is the food is beautiful but it doesn't look delicious. And the sex is like aesthetically gorgeous. It's like, you know, these two people making love in like a pantry or like Mm -hmm. surrounded by like beautiful things of cheese, but it's not sexy. And it's like, how does he do that? Like, it's like this very interesting thing where he's so, he takes these, you know, like very like bodily sort of things. I mean, Greenway is so obsessed with like viscera and like, what is dirty and like, and like the human sort of like what makes us like the most human and he elevates and he makes it so elegant, but there's like no warmth in it whatsoever. And it's kind of this like outside eye. And it's one of the, it's, it's something I have never been able to do as a filmmaker. And I'm kind of like, how do I, how do I do that? How do you, how do you present that? It's such a, it's a very interesting skill that I think probably has a lot to do with the fact that he, is a painter and like, is like, was, comes from, you know, a a fine arts background. And so, and he says too, that he's like, so not obsessed with narrative. He's like, I don't care about narrative. And I'm like, interesting. Is that how you do it? You just have to like, be like, okay, I don't care about the story. I just want it to like, I want it to feel a certain way. I want it to look a certain way. I want it to sound a certain way. Yeah. But he does care about the story. I mean, at least in this case, and yes. in, in the films he made in the eighties, they all have very clear narrative lines. They're just presented yeah. in this strange, surrealistic, stylized way. Yeah. Like this is a revenge picture. This is a story. Yeah. Of, this is so simply re- readable as just what a it revenge is. Story. It just yeah. happens to be, you know, framed like a Renaissance painting and lit like an impressionist work. And yeah. It's, I'm probably screwing up the reference points, but it is just, it's so clearly the work of someone who is interested in 
making a statement about the thing he's showing us. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's mm-hmm. cold without ever mm-hmm. telling us that anybody, like no one is right in the end. I mean, if, you, if you're looking at it, it's as sort of a palette of the seven deadly sins. Like there's gluttony, mm-hmm. adultery. It's, they're all in there. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Interesting. You know, that's Caravaggio. That's what he would have done. Yeah. Uh, and this is his version, I think. I, I'm terrible at the fine art references. Right. Yeah. Um, but it is so clearly directed by a, mm-hmm. like the hand of one person. And Sasha yes. Virni's cinematography is, is just as important. Yes. But it is yeah. Greenaway telling him what colors and what lights and what gels. Like you can feel it. Oh, and that's the other thing too, is like the color palette in it to me is so fascinating. Like it is, he chooses, it's, you know, in the same way where it's like, he doesn't want anything ever to be like too, I don't know, like warm or like genuinely erotic or sexy. So he picks these, like the palette is gorgeous. It's like these jewel tones of like emerald and ruby and sapphire. And like, sometimes a little bit of like citrine, but Mm. everything is like, it feels like imperial in a way that is like, you know, there's always a little bit of like, you never feel comfortable when you're watching the film. Like he doesn't allow you to ever feel comfortable. Like even with like the like weird Greek chorus of like Dalmatians that he has like running around the parking lot of <laughs> about the, the Holland days. He loves Dalmatians. Dalmatians, like they're all over Greenway's movies. And uh, it's because yeah, they're it's inbred like- and insane. <laughs> I think yeah, it's his commentary on the English. Yeah, might be. Might be. I mean, it's interesting, too, because this movie was made, I guess, Thatcher era. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And it's like, it makes, I'm like, I'm like, interesting. I'm like, are we just talking about, like, is this his, I mean, he's like ahead of his time in a lot of ways. It's like, is this his, is this his triangle of sadness? Is this his the menu? <laughs> is it just a massive commentary on, like, you know, the ungreed and and our obsession with with consuming and, like, there's, I actually, so there was a talk that I listened to that he gave, I can't remember where it was, like the, and like s- somewhere in LA, he was doing a talk and he's talking about uh, the character of Albert, Michael Gambon, um, who Michael Gambon plays. And he said, he's the character who knows the price of everything and the value of nothing. And I was right. like, yes, green away. I was like, that's what I'm talking about. I was like, this terrible, like, you know, uh, new money gangster who is just like obsessed with like with privilege and with poise, but has no appreciation for like anything that is truly artistic or has value. And I thought it was, I was like, that really like cemented the the sort of like, I don't know, ethos of, of sort of like what this film was trying to, what Peter, what Greenway was trying to say with this film. But have you seen the menu yet? I have. I uh, I <clears throat> I introduced the world premiere at TIFF, in fact, oh, which was kind of an amazing honor. Yeah I, yeah, I can imagine. I haven't seen it yet, and I'm really looking forward to watching it because I'm like, I love food movies. I love the entire cast of The Menu. And I was like, as I was re-watching this film to talk about it on this podcast, I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, The Menu. I was like, I wonder if, I'm sure that was a, you know, there was a couple of stills on the mood board for The Menu from uh, from Greenaway's work. Yeah, it's is funny, there, it didn't come up. Um, oh, okay. I, I will say that it is, like, The Menu is a one-joke movie, but it's a really good joke. Okay. So it's just... Yeah variations on that point for the entire film. And once it establishes mm-hmm. what it's going to be, it really just goes for it. Interesting. Um, but it is trying to be, 
I think it's what's interesting is that that Mark Mylod's direction is stylized in pieces. Mm. Um, so you're allowed to appreciate the production design of the restaurant and you're allowed to appreciate the sort of the crispness of the white uniforms and all of that. Mm. But he really only indulges it in there are these sort of hero shots of the food with little bits of recipe that show up uh, for each mm. course. And that's when it feels like he's going in that direction. But otherwise, okay. it's sort of it's it's played out from mostly Anya Taylor-Joy's character's perspective. And she's the normal right. person in the room. And okay. so yeah. she's allowed to be repulsed by what she sees and, and horrified. Mm. And so, so are we. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is fun. It's 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 a ride. It's it's, yeah. it's we're definitely worth seeing. Um, yeah. We didn't get to talk about. Greenaway there, though, it didn't come up. He was talking about other references. I mean, he directs Succession, so I think that's kind right. of the, the logical that's, conclusion for this is yes. that's what it's about. But Succession is this, yeah. too. Like, yeah. Succession is about Speaker's kids. Yes, totally. Um, and, totally. and Brian Cox, who... Is totally Michael Gambon, is, just is, many yeah. years later. But he exactly, he's become Spick, uh, respectable, right? He didn't yeah. kill someone and get shot and himself, and he's, he's endured yeah. long enough to like launder his, his billions and become yes. respectable. Yes. Um, this guy. And I love, I absolutely love this weird little thing about English cinema, which is the, the, the Harry Potter movies have become the gateway drug for all of these films that all of these actors who worked with Lee and Greenaway and Lurch, yeah. and they're all just yeah. turning up as, as kindly teachers in these movies. I and, know. and no. Gambon like, gets to play Dumbledore and there's like a whole bunch of 22 year olds who are about to see this whenever it comes back I and know. have their heads explode. Have their heads explode because he is. And I think, I think of all the performances in the film, I think Gambon is the best. I mean, it's, it's so interesting because, you know, Greenaway does this kind of like strange thing where like, I don't even know how he's directing the actors, but I feel like he's kind of just like less emotion, less emotion, just less but Gambin, he just let, I feel like he just kind of let Gambin be a bull in a china shop. I feel like Gambin got very little direction in this movie <laughs> and showed up on the day and Greenway was like, right, yes, good. Yep, keep doing it. Because like his, his monologues, like the first monologue in the movie when he's like smearing dog shit all yeah. over um, one of the workers at the restaurant. I'm not even sure like who that character is supposed to be. Somebody who owes him money. Yeah. But I thought it was like, like a business rival or something, but somebody who's rival. definitely lower on the totem pole. Yes. And it's like a 15 minute monologue. Like nobody speaks for like the first 15 minutes, except for Gambin with like minor interjections from his cronies, but no one speaks except for Gambin for the first like 15 minutes. And he just goes and he, like, and it's so entertaining. It is like, like it, and it, it does reach a breaking point in the film, I think, when you're just like, you're tired of watching him be so cruel and like just destroy. And like, you can see, like, I, I love that. I love the progression of, I mean, it's so funny because like it starts on, I think, a Thursday and it ends on a Friday. It's like eight days. The movie takes place over eight days. And, you know, but I love seeing the progression of like how many people are coming to the restaurant because Gambin just like every night, it's like another disaster at the restaurant that he's causing and he's like slowly kind of you know isolating himself in this hell of his own making but it's like it's his and but it's so funny because he i was was reading um that greenway actually didn't want gambin for uh for albert he wanted uh gambin to play the bookseller he wanted him to play michael which I thought was so funny because I was like, oh yeah, there's the Dumbledore aspect of like Gambin. <laughs> but I think like, I think Gambin 
kills this role. It's so, it's masterful. And the moments when he like totally turns and you see this like naked childlike um, humanity in him when he talks about wanting to have children and how much he loves Georgina, it's, you have sympathy for him. You're like, this man is a fucking monster, but like he is um, sympathetic in like a kind of way because he's such a clown, but and he's such a clown and such a bully, but there is like a tender little part of him that is like just desperately wants to have children. And it's, I, I think it, I, I love the performance so much. I think it's like up there for me and like performances uh, of all time. Oh, it's yeah. It's his raging bull. It's, it's it, totally. absolutely magnetic and horrifying and, and all of those things. And I think the reason it needs, we need to spend 15 minutes with him is we need to understand why Georgina wants out. Like totally. by the time those, those scenes are over, by the time we actually get to hear her and see her as anything other than arm candy, who's just beautifully dressed, but suffering silently mm-hmm. next to this monster. Mm-hmm. Then we're on her side so completely yeah. and his tenderness, which is, yeah, you're right. It's there. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that's Gambon more than the script because there's probably a way agree. that that was supposed to be played as, as feel sorry for me yeah. as, as not vulnerability, but just a, a, an, a Manipulation. An attempt to, yeah, an attempt to cull yeah. sympathy from yeah. people. Um, he gives it a heart that just, this is a broken man. He like, he's, he never yeah. had a chance as a child and he grew up into this. He saw yeah. a way to become successful and he took it and it cost him everything. Yeah. But to to pivot then to the wife, the lover, to to all the other things that are happening around him that to which he's oblivious mm-hmm. um, is great because then all you're waiting for is for him to find out because that's going to happen. And yes. like, the structure of the film guarantees it, but this yes. is like, this is a forties noir in a weird way. It's just. Yeah. It totally does have noirish elements to it. It's very, it, it is quite, quite noirish. Yeah. Betrayal, revenge. Yeah. Uh, forbidden everything. Yeah. Retribution. He, he creates like such, like it is like, it's anxiety. Like it's, it's just so much anxiety. Like in the first scene in the bathroom, when Helen Mirren is like blowing the bookseller in the bathroom and Gambin comes in and you're just like, like you you really are terrified that they're going to be discovered because like, I think, and I think that speaks to the quality of Gambin's performance because you are terrified as a viewer as to what this man will do because you know that he will do whatever he wants and like when he finally does discover that that georgina is cheating on him and he's like screaming in the kitchen i'll kill him and i'll eat him i will eat him like you know you know that's what's gonna happen you know that's what's gonna happen in the movie and and then the like the turn of it is is so good my my favorite part of the movie for sure um, which was like the moment when like, I remember like I had like full body chills when I watched when I was like a 21 year old is the moment when like Nyman score comes in and the entire kitchen staff comes walking out the doors with like the pallbearers with like Michael's corpse, like human allorange. And like, you have like the, the scullery boy and like the whore who like Albert's like stuck a fork into her face and she's coming back with this like weird, like half face max gone. Mm-hmm. And, and that's when like Nyman's score, I think just like, it is so seductive and like powerful and it's like French revolution and like all of these ideas that have kind of been, you know, 
circling or that have been like kind of, yeah, like tornadoing around in, in this world, kind of like become still and focused and centered. And it's just like pure revenge fantasy. And you're like, yes, you're like, make him eat that corpse. Yeah. It's not a climax. It's a crescendo. It's a crescendo. Exactly. And it's so, it's so Wagnerian. Like it is. And then it's amazing too. Like I'm obsessed with Michael Nyman, like my favorite film composer by like a million miles. And like, I've listened to the soundtrack a number of times and rewatching the movie. I'd forgotten that that weird sort of like dissonant, um, like, uh, I think it's like clarinet and trombone that comes in at the end that yeah. sort of creates that like, wow, wow, wow. Sound is only in like the final two minutes of the film. And like, cause you have, like everybody knows the sort of like opening the strings, you know, the, opening yeah. note, the string section that's like, dun, dun, dun. I mean, which is the reason for the anxiety too, because it's a heartbeat, right? Like it's It's, just constantly agitating at us, but I'm sorry, I cut you off. You were saying. No. And, and, and it just, just that like that, that it is so satisfying the culmination, like sonically, visually performance wise, there's like stoicism and, and like, you know, it's what Les Miserables wanted to be like when they, yeah. When like everybody goes to the barricade because it's just a little more staid and a little more weird and like uh, I don't know a little more deserving I don't know but it's it's spectacular yeah but, I mean I think like to say a little bit more about the score which I'm so obsessed with please I think like some of the some of the scenes that take place in the kitchen he brilliantly I mean I don't know who was mixing the movie but I'm sure he worked very closely with Nyman like in figuring out. Um, how he was going to incorporate. I'd be so curious to know if the music was written before the film was shot because there's like, probably wasn't, but there's all these interesting scenes in the kitchen when like the chopping of the vegetables is like sonically in time with Mm -hmm. Nyman's score. And like, even like the consomme that's like being boiled is like, like the bubbles. It's bubbling in time. Yeah. It's bubbling in time. And like the knife sharpening too. Like it's, gorgeous it's like you really know you're in the hands of a master when you're like seeing all of that come together and you're like wait how like did you plan this like how and how did you plan it Hey, it's Norm interrupting my own show to tell you about the latest shiny things newsletter my twice weekly dispatch about physical media culture and the odd streaming thing Last week, I made my picks for the best films of 2022 and celebrated the Blu-ray release of the delightful Star Trek Prodigy. And this week, I'll be tackling Dwayne Johnson's Black Adam, among other things. Sign up for a 14-day free trial at shiny-things.ghost.io or find a link at the Simcast Twitter account. Look, if I don't write about movies, I'll probably die. Could you live with that? I obviously can't. I didn't know this until I looked up Wikipedia, like I always do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes. apparently there's a composition uh, of Nyman's from 1985 that's used in the score. So it is possible. Ah, it's called Memoria. And okay. I haven't, I'm not familiar with it, but now I kind of want to double check. But it could have certainly been like played on set or at least a, a, an agreed upon rhythm. And they'd worked together for almost a decade at that point anyway. Yeah, so. they were big buds. Yeah. yeah. I wonder about that. Because like it's, I, like as a filmmaker, I'm, you know, I'm starting to, I'm starting to think about that a little more. Cause I, I always bring my speaker to set. Cause a lot of the time I'll be like, 
you know, to, you know, just like, like a loser in the morning to the cast will be like, I was falling asleep last night and I, I was thinking about this song and it really, really means something to this character in this moment. So I'm going to play it for you and then we'll go into the scene. Okay. But it would be so cool. Even just for like the rhythm and the tempo of performance and like, even like how the cinematographer is like capturing the scene to know sort of what the rhythm and the tempo inevitably were maybe going to sort of be like is really intriguing to me. So I would, I would love in the future to experiment with like knowing exactly what music I'm going to use and see how much that could inform like actual filmmaking on the day on the set. So it's like, I've never, never been able to do that before. So. Yeah. I mean, Greenaway would probably just bring in a string quartet and have them play for the room. He probably would. There was definitely like, there's, there's no doubt about it, that there was like, (laughs) that there was, yeah, like at least a cello and a, and, and a couple of violins like hiding somewhere in the like bakery section of the set. (laughs) There is something to his movies where every choice is deliberate. Every angle is so clearly, you know, bespoke Mm -hmm. to, to build this entire world. There's maybe two exteriors in the entire picture outside yeah. the restaurant and even those yeah. might be a soundstage it's everything was shot on the soundstage because the only exterior that you get is in the parking lot mm. oh no there's a couple of street scenes too but i'm sure those were studio as well because there feels like, like it yeah it, totally like the like really the only street scene is when the the scullery boy is like running is going back to the restaurant and then they catch him and stuff buttons down his throat and send yeah. him to the hospital as you do as as you as you do in a greenaway film um, but yeah, I think, I think it was all shot, uh, at whatever the like Pinewood studios or whatever those used to be called prior to, prior to that. But yeah, it is, I think, okay. So one other thing that I want to talk about in it is, and you, t- you talked about it earlier, which is the, the casting of Helen Mirren and, um, oh my God, who plays Michael Allen, Alan Howard. And it's like, they're kind of the least sexy people of all time. <laughs> yeah. And Helen Mirren in 1989 was not the least sexy person in any not room. Not the least sexy. Not, definitely. Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But it's like, now that would never happen. Like this, this movie, unless like, I, to, be, to be like public, publicly funded, like I, I don't know what the budget was on the film, but to have this man be the romantic lead of this film who is like, balding like you know really like really just an average looking guy mm-hmm. like it would just never happen like now you would have like oscar isaac in the role or whatever <laughs> and it's it makes me love the movie so much more because it's like it's so unusual and i think i think the casting too to me um like it helps uh not helps, but is consistent with Greenaway's, um, I think, inclination to present, like, present elegance that is never warm, present elegance that is never, quote unquote, traditionally sexy or mm-hmm. something that you want to eat. Like, you know, there's nothing on screen in this film that you want to eat, that you like want to like dream about like it's all it's all a little bit grotesque and i think i think the casting of that was like it's it's perfect 
Well, he's less interested in people as aesthetic objects, right? Like it's mm-hmm. they're they're an element in his frame. But mm-hmm. even in even in Drowning by Numbers, even I mean, the Drossman's contract maybe is a little more straightforwardly sexy. Yeah, and I think it's you, because do you like the Drossman's contract. I'm so I, curious. I like it. I don't love it. I, okay. I find it it feels like a conflict between what he wants to do and what everybody else thinks he should do. And, I totally agree. I totally yeah. agree. He's but like, okay, yes, yeah, sure, I'll make it sexy. <laughs> Yeah, it's like fine. We'll light this properly, but yes, yeah. But you know that—that's the thing about Cook the Thief is that everything is so gorgeous except the people mm-hmm. who are allowed to have, you know, flesh. They're not mm-hmm. like they're in—they're by no means unhealthy-looking people. No, no. But they're just no. lit naturally, as opposed yeah. to you know, there's no key light on somebody's chest or, no. or shadows on a jawline to make it a little sh- sharper, a little tighter. I um, know. Nobody is, and I think it's because subtly, this is, I don't, I, I've never seen this played out or proven anywhere. This is my own theory, but I think mm-hmm. it's because we're just sort of being told to interpret them as meat. Like, oh, interesting. As just, I mean, you know, treat them the same way as the hogs that are being butchered or the, wow. just see them as bodies. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, that is like, I mean, the, I've, I've often wondered like, what he was going for with like, you know, in the beginning, the two trucks come mm. to like the, to the restaurant. There's like a truck of meat and a truck of seafood. And then, um, Alan and Helen Mirren end up like being, uh, they have to escape. And they're hidden in the frozen trucks truck yeah, yeah. of rotting meat. And it's like, like what, what was Greenway trying to say with that? Like, I mean, you know, once there's sort of like the, um, the devolution of like the finery of this restaurant and like simultaneously like outside there are like these trucks of like, there's this, you know, truck of rotting seafood and this truck of rotting meat. And it's like, basically like the kingdom is falling apart and like it's rotten from the inside. And like, you know, it's, it's an, it's, it's, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Right. But it's like, I, I always, I always wondered, I was like, when, because there's this weird aspect of it too, when Michael and Georgina, they're naked for like 20 minutes in the film and they can't get their clothes back. And like, uh, the chef, the, the cook, Richard, um, Oh my God, what's his name? Uh, Richard, uh, uh Borgé. Yeah. is like, yes, I will get your clothes, but like, you have to go now. And then they're just naked for like 20 minutes. And I was like, okay, Greenway, I know you're like a bit of a, you know, religious, like a bit of a Catholic stance. So I was like, are we doing a weird Adam and Eve thing here? Oh, I but think very you, much so. Yeah. I, I think so. But it's like, but then you put them in this truck of rotting meat. And I was like, not a hundred percent sure with what you're going for there, but <laughs> evocative imagery, like, well done, sir. Very interesting. Yeah. It struck me as the kind of thing where like, he's trying to show us how much suffering they're willing to endure to be together. Ah, interesting. But, and yes. so there's an Adam and Eve thing there, mm-hmm. but there's also just a, a vulnerability of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Like they're, they're mm-hmm. just, this is punishment for something. And it, that's right. like, that's my seven deadly sins theory too, where he's just right. constantly showing us what gluttony looks like. Mm-hmm, and even mm-hmm. if it's even if it's lust, even if it's you mm-hmm. know like a lust for the flesh of another person to bury yourself in them, which right. which is sort of a reading here where they're surrounded by additional flesh, but it's just horrible. Um, yeah, I don't yeah. even know where. Yeah, I'm not sure where I'm going with that exactly, but it feels yeah. like the culmination of all of the ugliness of all of the messiness of the yeah. world that he's well, built. Like, I want to believe too that. I mean, in the kitchen scenes, they're so interesting because 
he, I mean, throughout Greenway's work, like spirituality and particularly Catholicism is like, is very present. Mm -hmm. And in the kitchen scenes, it's very clear that there is um, a kind of religiosity to it. Like the, the, some of the sous chefs are sort of dressed like nuns and there's like a reverence for the food that is taken that is sort of holy. And I mean, even um, like the character of, of the cook is very kind of priestly in a way like Helen Mirren tries to like get him to like, you know, to, you know, have sex with her later. And he's like, he resists, but he's very like, he's very chaste in a lot of ways. And I think like everybody in the kitchen and even like the scullery boy who another fantastic performance, like who is that kid? Where did he go? (laughs) Um, But he like, he's singing these like gorgeous, like choir boy hymns um, as he like washes dishes. And like, there's a, it's like the it's the church of of uh, fine cuisine of haute cuisine for for Greenaway, but I also think that in some ways I want to believe that what Greenaway was kind of like on about in those uh, associations was like these people are vanguards of um, good taste, and like they are the the keepers and the watchers and the like the the knights who protect. Uh, what is what is of value um, because it is of good taste, mm-hmm. and I think that you know there's there's something like I I love to believe that that like you know Peter is enough of an optimist, <laughs> even though he's not. This man is a raging nihilistic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, we all Cynic. rot. I think that is kind yeah, of his deal. Yeah, we all rot. That's kind of his thing. But I think that there's like I think I I like to believe um, that there's something in those associations that he, he believes that, you know, there is value in, uh, in preserving and in, in the preservation of good taste. Um, and I think that that's kind of like exemplified in, in, in those, in those kitchen scenes and beautifully done just. Yeah. Oof. Well, and that's the other thing too, because Richard is doing all of yeah. this for a man. He doesn't, he neither respects nor admires who treats his food like, fuel like garbage yeah um it's all corrupted mm-hmm. like all this beautiful work is for nothing for nothing i think about the stop motion decay in uh z and two knots where yeah. we're shown in horrific unrelenting detail just mm-hmm. bodies of animals collapsing into nothing yes and still yeah i have i have issues with that i mean it's 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 as grand a statement as any filmmaker could ever make about anything. Yeah. Um, and Cronenberg was inspired to make Dead Ringers as a result of right. the, the, the visuals of it. Um, and it's it's a magnificent accomplishment, but like, where do you go from there? And that's the yeah. answer, right? You go here. You find something truly beautiful and you watch it come apart in slow motion in exactly the same way, except that it's the souls of the people trapped inside the film. Yeah, yeah. It's, and like, it's so funny too, like at the, at the end, like when Mirren in that insane costume, which is probably Gautier's masterpiece for like the entire film, when she comes in this like BDSM, like leather cage dress, and she has this like woman who's like following her around, like moving the cage behind her. And it's like, all of a sudden, you know, it's like the, it's the apotheosis. It is like the emerging of, of the butterfly. It's like, it's, it is, it is Helen Mirren who has like finally come 
into her own and is like totally self-possessed. And there is like something about her in that scene and the rest of the sort of like kitchen staff who come and are kind of like doing their moment of like Viva la Revolution. Um, that is like in that moment we get to see, I think, I don't know, there's like it might be Greenaway's best film because it's like, I feel like it's the closest he comes in his entire canon to optimism. Cause like he is, he's a raging cynic and like he's obsessed with irony. It's like, he can't, he can't have a frame or a phrase that's not like just laced with a titch of irony. (laughs) But I think in this one, it's like, that's probably the, like, it's one of the most earnest scenes that Greenaway has, I think in like all of his films, it's like Mirren telling a man that she hates to eat her dead lover that he killed. And it's like, yeah, there's, there's like a, there's an earnestness to it that I really appreciate. And I think like Greenaway, so I think he is both fascinated by melodrama and actually quite drawn to it, but also totally repulsed by it. So it's like, he has (laughs) to put it in his films, but he also like has to comment on the fact that like, here's some melodrama and like, what a joke. And as a filmmaker, I totally sympathize with that because <laughs> if left to my own devices without, uh, you know, uh, somebody else telling me like, do you think that's maybe a little cheesy? I'm, I, I would make something terrible and cheesy. And yeah. so I, yeah, I think you're right. It might be his best film. But it it's a moral, be. it's the one time one of his films offers a moral ending. Like that yes. actually is, people have yes. died, people have suffered you know, an innocent, I mean, I suppose if you go by the, the sinning thing, then the transgression is already committed where you've, you've yeah. committed adultery, but mm-hmm. the bad man is held accountable. And yeah. I think it's the only time in any of his movies where there is some sort of scale balance thing happening. Yes. Um, yeah. cause drowning by numbers ends with such, such a, an empty, Ambiguity. sad, yeah, yeah. Uh, nothingness. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, Watching it this last time, I realized it's the first time the camera tilts down at Spica when he's oh, when he's eating when he's, eating when he's when he's there holding his knife and fork and, and he's made smaller trembling. right like yeah he's not yeah. only isolated but he's smaller mm-hmm. and it it connects to that childishness thing and yeah. you know this is the first time he's been forced to experience consequence yes and yes. it's almost too good that he gets killed. Like he I know, should have to finish. It's almost too good. I know he takes one bite. He takes yeah. one bite and it's not even the dick, which Helen Mirren is like, try the cock, Albert. Yes, you it's a delicacy, it's, right? You like, know where it's been. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's delicacy. It's and horrible. then he takes some like some ab of Michael and you're like, I don't know. You're like, Spicka should have to eat that whole thing. And what's her, what is the final line of the movie? She shoots him and she says. Oh, cannibal. Yeah. Cannibal. Dismissively. Like that's the thing that bothers her the most, which is wonderful. And that's Peter Greenaway's sense of humor. You know, you go out on a laugh line, even though you've just experienced two hours of this, this, this this grinder. Yeah. Um, Like, yeah. A violin bow, just like sawing into into your brain. Yeah. But it's so pleasurable. It is like, I get it. I understand why this was his popular breakthrough, like why it was a hit. And part of that, we kind of have to deal with the the Weinstein of it all, right? Like this is Harvey Weinstein buying it and making sure Everybody yeah. knew that it was the big, sexy cannibal picture, which it kind yes. of really isn't. But yeah. I do love the idea of Miramax's then reputable 
machinery, and this is yeah. before the Disney purchase, um, yeah. just going all out to make sure people knew what this movie was. Yeah. Um, even though releasing it unrated, which of course was the only way to release it in the States, guaranteed that audiences right. wouldn't get to see it because it would only right. play a certain number of theaters. But right. without, like, that's the worst thing about the legacy of Harvey Weinstein, other than all the really horrible shit, which I don't want to, mm -hmm. like, his crimes against art are nothing against his crimes against people. Yes. But, Kind of weird that like Albert Spicka kind of is right. Harvey Weinstein. I was kind of about to like, go there. Like, yeah. Whoa, parallel. Yeah, just a vulgarian who doesn't appreciate anything that he's touching, but is actually paying for it all. It's so yeah. strange that that film because yeah. it isn't like Miramax wasn't Miramax when Greenaway made it. None of this is yeah. is a logical through line. It just feels so much like a snapshot thirty odd yeah. years later of the thing that was about to happen. It is right. absolutely fascinating. It's also the reason we were talking about this before we started recording. Uh, mm -hmm. It's also the reason there's no Blu-ray because by the time Blu-ray happened, Miramax was owned by Disney and Disney wouldn't right. touch this thing. Really interesting. Yeah. Okay. But like, I'm kind of confused because now like Disney is like putting out Sallow, like on streaming, like on Disney plus. And I'm like, what? Sallow? Did I miss yeah. that? I like, maybe, maybe I needed to like read a tweet. No, somebody like, I'm pretty sure this is verified. Like they're, they're releasing Sallow on, on Disney plus. I am distressed by this. Uh, I, am, I thought it was on I Criterion. Was also, it's definitely on Criterion, yeah. but okay. We're going to have to do some like Googling after this. I don't like, know how they several, could... several of my friends sent me, maybe it was like, maybe I should have read the it's article probably an a onion little thing. more. Yeah. Maybe yeah. it's an onion thing. I don't know. But several of my friends were like, yes, yeah, I was coming out on Disney. And I was like, what? No. I was like, no. Like the no, joke to you. me would be Hulu commissioning an eight part new adaptation of Sallow <laughs> from, you know, I don't know, um, the guys who made 500 um, Days of Summer. Uh, yeah. That, they would probably do a bang up job. With 500 Days of Sallow. It's right there. Perfect. I can't wait to watch that eight part miniseries. It's going to be can. great. I can wait. Maybe, maybe Mike, maybe Mike White could like come in as a consultant and like really, <laughs> and really make it, really make it pop. <laughs> He's kind of doing that already. He kind um, of is. 500 Days of Sallow. 500 Days of Sallow. What would the musical number in the middle be? I don't want to know. I don't want to think mm -hmm. about it. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Chapel of Love, probably. <laughs> Oh God! Um, oh. How do we get back to anything reasonable? I was gonna. I, the the podcast always wraps up with the same question, which is, mm -hmm. you know, is there anything of Cook the Thief in the movies you've made in your work? And I I don't mm -hmm. see a lot of Greenaway in adult adoption. I do see a certain no. love for faces, mm. like for textures yeah. of people. Yeah, but that's that's the only thing I can connect to. Like I I feel like I. I feel like there's not, uh, there's, there is, there is no green away in adult adoption. Absolutely not. I mean, I think the references for that film when we were sort of like planning that was like very Andrea Arnold heavy, very mm -hmm. sort of like, you know, cinema verite, like faces, closeness, roughness, kind of, uh, um, whereas Greenaway is literally the complete opposite, but the very first film that I made, which is called case of the Massey bodice ripping, which was, which was a short that I filmed in like 20. 17 um is heavily influenced by greenaway like it's very compositional it's very theatrical there are like long extended wides um it is like a it's very like mannered it's like set in the 1920s um and yes it was the first film that i made so it's a little embarrassing <laughs> but 
I also am really proud of it. Like I, I, I watched it again kind of recently. Um, and I was like, you know what? I was like, I can really see a lot of like me as a young filmmaker kind of be like, you know, I was trying to, trying to figure things out a little bit. Um, and so, and I think that was sort of like me taking some elements of his life. Like I definitely, there's a shot of like a woman in a French maid outfit, like stuffing a raw poultry carcass. And like, <laughs> I remember shooting that and being like, yes, I was like, this is it. I was like, oh, I'm getting what I want here. And there's like the irony and the kind of like arch performances that you kind of get, like the emotionless, but arch performances. that I think are hallmark of Greenaway's canon. Um, but yeah, I, adult adoption, my first feature has nothing to do with that. And I think <laughs> that was like, I mean, I didn't write adult adoption. Um, mm -hmm. so, you know, I, I had to service the script. Um, and so it's not, it's not necessarily, it's not necessarily exactly what I would do. And I think it's, it's an interesting kind of like cross-section for a director. I think when, when you're directing somebody else's work, because you can't, um, you don't want to just uh, foist all of your sort of taste on top of somebody else's text. I think you have to take the text and be like, okay, how do I make this, this text beautiful? And like, what services this text in a good way? Um, whereas like, I have a screenplay right now that I'm trying to get made that is like the most, like <laughs> the most ridiculous Greenaway-esque kind of <laughs> shit show um, that eventually I will get to make. Uh, and I can't wait to, you know, shoot it on 35 millimeter and light the shit out of it in the most like, you know, old school, <laughs> gelled, color paletted kind of way. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> yeah, that movie's going to be really cool when I get to make it. My thanks to Karen Knox, whose feature directorial debut, Adult Adoption, opens in Toronto with a review cinema this Saturday, January 14th, and next Friday, January 20th, in London and Vancouver. Karen will be at the review on opening night for a Q&A with friend of the show, Emily Gagné. Check out reviewcinema.ca for tickets. Thanks also to Laura Steen. She knows what she did. You can find Karen on Twitter at Knox underscore X underscore X underscore X or just search her name. And you can find The Cook, The Thief, His Wife, and Her Lover streaming on BritBox in the US, but not in Canada. You can find the Anchor Bay DVD knocking around out there, and the UK Blu-ray isn't expensive if you've got a multi-region player. So, once again, let's hear it for physical media. As always, you can find me on Twitter, at Norm Wilner, and you can find this podcast there at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. The first year of the show is still available for just 20 bucks at payhip.com semcast. That's the first 52 episodes of Someone Else's Movie, 44 of which aren't currently available anywhere else. And check out my newsletter, Shiny Things, at shiny-things.ghost.io. I think you'll enjoy it. Our theme song is by the last year. If you like it or the show in general, please say so. Leave a review wherever you've been listening. Every little bit helps. It truly does. And check out the other shows on the Frequency Podcast Network while you're doing that. Stay safe. Watch movies. Wear a mask if you go out. Get your booster when you can. I'll see you next week. <laughs>